Welcome back again, ladies and gentlemen, to another China History Podcast episode. Laszlo Montgomery here with part 12 of this, well, longer than I expected, History of Taiwan series. I was sure this one would only go to 10. Over the last two or three episodes, we saw how everyone on Taiwan and the offshore islands remained on a wartime footing from the time of the Great Retreat and all throughout the 1950s. It was a very stressful decade in the Taiwan Strait, particularly on those offshore islands, and there were plenty of battle deaths to attest to that. I didn't mention this last time, but between the two Taiwan Strait crises of 1954-55 and 1958, there were around a 1,000 soldiers killed on the Nationalist side and 850 or so on the PLA side, not to mention all the ships that were sunk, jet fighters shot down, and who knows how many thousands of injuries on both sides. Let me reiterate, when people refer to last August 2022 as the so-called fourth Taiwan Strait crisis, it hardly rose to the levels of the first and especially the second ones of the 1950s. We haven't gotten to the third one yet. In December 1963, Chen Cheng stepped down as premier. He was stricken with cancer and would pass in 1965. Throughout the 1960s, Chiang Jingguo would stand in for the Generalissimo for military and party matters. He didn't have the title yet, but yeah, he was treated as the heir apparent. Jingguo, he still ran the secret police and intelligence organs. Chen Cheng was replaced by the finance minister C.K. Yen, Yen Chia Gan, a man well-liked by the ones who mattered in the KMT and who had a reputation for getting things done. Yen was, he was a close confidant of Madame Chiang and posed no political threat to her husband, which eh, always counted for something. And though I'm jumping ahead, Yen served as premier till 1972 and from 1966 until Chiang's death in 1975 as vice president. Following Chiang Kai-shek's death, C.K. Yen will then become the next president of the Republic of China finishing off Jiang's fifth term in May 1978. With Jiang's last-ditch effort, Project National Glory, winding down and destined to be permanently mothballed, he now turned his attention from recovering the mainland to the other devil in his life, one that had been dogging him since his earliest days in the 1920s, and this was silencing opposition figures. Remember last time how I mentioned Chiang Kai-shek had the National Assembly amend the Constitution to include a provision that essentially paved the way for a third term as president, even though the 1947 Constitution said two terms only and that's it? Well, when he began making plans for a third term as president, Chiang met with a bit of opposition. And there were many inside and outside the KMT who grumbled a little and expressed some concern about this. There was also no small amount of pushback from the people and from other political leaders. And the optics of that whole going for the third term eh, were not good at all. From previous episodes, we saw how native Taiwanese tried, eh, from time to time, to get some semblance of self-determination. They made a first attempt under the Qing, no luck there. Under the Japanese, also not so much representation in government. But this wasn't due to lack of trying. And now for the third time, with another group of outsiders lording it over them, 
They were still denied the same representation in Taiwan's government that they'd been requesting since the time of Liu Mingchuan when he served as Taiwan governor during the late Qing. The native Taiwanese were such an overwhelming majority, over 80% of the population. Why were they not being represented in their own democratic government? And even worse, why were they being oppressed? In so many past CHP episodes, we've come to know Chiang Kai-shek, the Generalissimo, the heir to Sun Yat-sen, his Nanjing decade. Well, from here on out, we get to know him as the Taiwan autocrat who displayed a similar ruthlessness that he had previously shown on the mainland in his ultimately unsuccessful attempts to vanquish the communists in China. One of the people, and a high-profile one at that, who questioned Jiang about this third term was Lei Chen. Lei went way back with Jiang Kai-shek on the mainland. He was one of Jiang's cronies in the KMT and had served as justice minister. Like most of Jiang's insiders, he was another Zhejiang guy. After retreating to Taiwan in 1949, Lei Chen, along with the great Hu Shi, founded a magazine called Free China Fortnightly. Free China was a very influential and widely read publication throughout the 1950s. It was fervently anti-communist and highly critical of the PRC. But it also delved into current events and issues of the day in Taiwan. And this is how Lei Chun fell afoul of Chiang Kai-shek. His first run-in with Jiang was in 1954 when Lei Chun allowed a letter to the editor to be printed in Free China that was highly critical of government interference in the Taiwan educational system. So he got kicked out of the party for that transgression, so he was already on Jiang's bad side when, in February 1960, he started sounding off in Free China about Jiang running for that third term. This was followed up a month later with an editorial that urged the National Assembly to reconsider changing the Constitution and not to add that provision that opened the door for a third presidential term. And that put Lei Chun and others who had coalesced around him squarely in Jiang's crosshairs. And in a commentary that ran in a May issue of Free China, Lei Chun called for the need of a strong opposition party on Taiwan. And then to back this up, he, along with several like-minded Taiwanese, formed the China Democratic Party, the Zhongguo Minzhu Dang. Lei Chun had said in the September 1st issue of Free China Fortnightly that opposition parties on Taiwan were as certain as the eastward flow of the Yangtze River and could never be stopped. Now, even though 52 years later this would be proved wrong with the Three Gorges Dam, that declaration by Lei Chun really hit a raw nerve with Jiang, and that was enough for him. A few days later, on September 4th, 1960, he had Jiang Jingguo arrest Lei Chun and three others and charge them with violating the Sedition Act. Rather than allow the judicial system to run its course, Jiang Kai-shek himself took over in meeting out justice in this case. On October 8th, he personally intervened and ordered the military court where Lei was tried to find him guilty of the trumped-up charge of conspiring with the communists. And he further demanded Lay be given no less than 10 years with no right of appeal. When you're a dictator, you can dictate these kinds of things. And further to that, 
Free China was shuttered, and anyone with delusions of forming a new political party to oppose the KMT knew for the time being to lay low. The unwritten law of the land, going back to Sun Yat-sen's time, was Yi Dang Zhi Guo. One party rules the state. Lei Jun ended up not getting released until 1970, and all his memoirs that he had written throughout the period of incarceration on Green Island were seized from him when he was freed. And following his death in 1979, attempts were made by his widow and others to get the authorities to release his prison memoirs. Rather than release them, the government had them burned. And the beginning of Taiwan's democratic movement is said to have begun right here with the whole sorry Lei Jun incident. Jiang's handling of Lei Jun in 1960 put everyone on notice as far as what to expect if you swam against the KMT current. Then there was the Boyang incident. Lei Jun and Boyang, I suppose, would be the two highest-profile cases from this time of the iron fist of the KMT coming down hard on any and all dissenters in a harsh and unashamedly conspicuous way. Bo's real name was Guo Dingsheng. He was another mainlander from Kaifeng who escaped to Taiwan after 1949. In academic and intellectual circles, Boyang had achieved great renown as a historian, philosopher, and literary figure throughout the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. His case was quite interesting, not only for how he was manhandled and thrown into Green Island Prison, where he was tortured and subject to a long period of incarceration. The whole incident that landed him there concerned Popeye the Sailor Man. Yeah, the spinach-eating cartoon character with those gigantic forearms. Well, the China Daily News, Zhonghua Bao, they ran a Popeye cartoon strip in early 1968. And it depicted Popeye and his adopted son, Sweepy, washed up on a tiny deserted island. And even though there were only the two of them, they discussed, you know, who would be the prince and the president. Boyang will swear to his dying day that insulting Jiang was never his intention. But the way he translated the comic strip by using an oft-repeated salutation that Jiang was famous for whenever he spoke publicly, Chen Guo Jin Min Tong Bao Men, it sort of looked like Jiang was a subject of ridicule and mockery. Well, when someone brought this Popeye cartoon to Jiang's attention, he blew his top. March 4th, 1968, he had Boyang arrested and sentenced to 12 years for being a communist spy and attacking the country's central leadership. And like I said, he got the full Green Island treatment, torture, humiliation, the whole nine yards. And after he served his sentence, he was released from prison, but still had to remain on Green Island. And it took the intervention of Amnesty International and the former New York Democratic Congressman Lester Wolf to get Jiang to release him. On October 1st, 1987, 382 days after his sentence had already ended, Boyang was let go. The New York Times, they called him China's Voltaire. Boyang went on to write an extremely controversial book called Chou Lo de Zhong Guo Ren, The Ugly Chinaman. He really let loose on the Chinese people and called them out for a whole number of cultural and social shortcomings. He had stated, quote, 
Our culture has been largely shaped by Confucianism, which does not contain a single element of equality, a keen concept in building a modern democratic system, end quote. There was also one other opposition force. These non-KMT opposition figures were known as Dang Wai, or outside the party. They were not KMT members and opposed the KMT in some matters, usually at the local level, and they registered with the government as the opposition. And I guess you could describe them as an opposition party that played within the strict rules of the KMT. Some of these Dang Wai politicians would later become the early founders of the DPP, or Democratic Progressive Party, which we'll get to next time. These Dang Wai parties were the China Youth Party and the China Democratic Socialist Party. Both were leftovers from the glory years on the mainland and were tolerated because they presented no political danger to the KMT. The Kennedy White House handled Chiang Kai-shek with the same pair of kid gloves as the previous occupant. JFK and other sacred cows at the State Department, right around this time, started running the old to China's idea up the flagpole. Well, they didn't just come out and say it. They did things like calling for peace between the two sides, the PRC and ROC. But this kind of talk it was perceived on both sides of the Taiwan Strait as tantamount to calling for two Chinas to exist simultaneously. Jiang predictably shouted that whole idea down and wrote a very strongly worded letter to Kennedy demanding he not be taken for granted. Then came the whole Bay of Pigs debacle, and then all of a sudden the Kennedy administration was keen to keep Jiang cooled down and to not rile him up, like what former Secretary of State Dean Acheson did when he suggested Taiwan become, quote, a self-contained country. And of course, over in Beijing, that whole idea of two Chinas eh, was as popular back then as it was last week. The headwinds Jiang could see on the radar were considerable. When Hard Day's Night came out in 1964, Chiang Kai-shek was already 77 years old and not in the best of shape. If it was any consolation to the Generalissimo, Chairman Mao's health wasn't that great either. But these two rivals from way back had plenty of staying power left in them and still had another decade to go before they faced mixed reviews from future historians. Anyway, for the time being, there wasn't anything going on that rose to the level of a Taiwan Strait crisis, but there were still a number of things that happened. Vessels were sunk, and there was that whole thing going on in Burma along the border with Yunnan, all mentioned in that Olive Yang episode, CHP 292. Those KMT remnant forces based there since 1949, for the longest time, had been carrying out these raids across the Yunnan-Burma border, the Burmese army, and the PLA finally got fed up with this and shooed them away in the direction of Laos, capturing 500 tons of U.S. military equipment in the process. Always an embarrassment. As the swinging 60s continued, Chiang Kai-shek started to see more and more warning signs in Taiwan's future. Starting in 1966, China checked out for a while and was consumed by the most violent and painful years of the Cultural Revolution. With the same single-minded sense of purpose and determination, the KMT changed their focus from recovering the mainland to growing the Taiwan economy. 
The general thinking was that by investing in the Taiwan economy and improving the people's livelihood and well-being, the esteem with which the people would hold the KMT would be positively affected. Plus, by acting as the steward of Taiwan's economy and its greater integration with world markets, well, they can continue to control the narrative and the destiny of the nation. The earliest attempts by the government to rebuild Taiwan following the destruction of World War II created a nice, solid economic base. It all began with Chun Chung and land reform and continued on throughout the 50s and into the 1960s. And now, with the agricultural sector more productive than ever before, attention was turned to industry in general and manufacturing in specific. And where manufacturing was concerned, the priority was given to export-oriented categories of goods. In past CHP episodes, we looked at Deng Xiaoping's reforms of the 1980s and how he's lauded into this day for getting behind reform and opening up and launching all the SEZs and all of these policies that combine government support and management with the genius of the entrepreneur class and hardworking people help to transform the Chinese economy and turn it into what it is today. Well, before all that happened in Shenzhen, Zhuhai, and Xiamen, a similar thing first happened in Taiwan. And what transpired on Taiwan over the two decades of the 1960s and 70s gave Deng and his fellow reformers in the PRC a lot of valuable lessons that came in handy in their similar vision for the PRC economy. This growth in manufacturing on Taiwan led to all kinds of new jobs and an unprecedented influx of foreign exchange. And thanks to the chummy relationship that already existed between Taiwan and the United States, manufacturers were able to tool up and get access to not only the U.S. consumer market, but U.S. investment and technological transfer as well. And made-in-Taiwan prices didn't give the American consumer heartburn. Kmart shoppers love Taiwan. Before American manufacturers began offshoring their production to the People's Republic, they first started doing it in Taiwan. Prior to the 1960s, most Taiwan families were just getting by. Only the rich and well-connected didn't have to scrimp and save. A lot of struggling Taiwan families were supported from the income earned by their parents laboring away in these factories popping up everywhere throughout the 1960s and 70s. These factories, clustered near the two biggest ports of Jilong and Kaohsiung, produced toys, garments, plastics, textiles, and anything else American and other buyers were looking to purchase. By 1965-1970, Made in Japan had become too expensive Taiwan became the new frontier, as China would in the 1980s and 90s. And what this growth in manufacturing led to was the creation of a new emerging middle class in Taiwan. Not everybody did as well as everyone else, but those hard scrabble years during the 1950s and early 60s were starting to give way to something better. You know, I haven't mentioned this uh, organization by name yet, but USAID, USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, they did quite a bit at the early outset to put Taiwan on a steady course in the direction of economic prosperity. If you remember from several episodes ago following World War II, the U.S. didn't think much of Taiwan and didn't figure them into their security plans in the Western Pacific. 
But as we saw, come the Korean War, that all changed. And that's when all the aid started coming to Taiwan. It was under Kennedy that all the various government aid organizations were streamlined into U.S. aid. In 1961, JFK boasted about Taiwan that agricultural production was up 7%, manufacturing output up 13%, GNP per capita up 7.5%, and constant prices, exports were up 20%, and the cost of living index went up 7% versus manufacturing wages that had risen 20%. Back then, well, 43% of Taiwan's GNP had come from the U.S. and 90% of their capital inflow from there as well. More than half of U.S. aid money was earmarked for the defense. But still, the amount of aid money that got piped into the Taiwan economy was quite substantial. And in these early years, made an impact in society. The 15 years from 1950 to 1965 were the big years for American aid in Taiwan. Between 1950 and 1967, there was about $4 billion in aid that went to Taiwan, 90% of which was gifted, and 10% came in the form of loans. And about 60% of that ended up being spent on Taiwan's defense, which I'm guessing went straight back to U.S. weapons contractors. So industrious were the workers, and so successful was this government-managed economic growth model by 1965. USAID no longer had to give any more handouts, and that was the end of general economic assistance money. Mission accomplished. The MAAG as well. Military aid coming from them dwindled down to $30 million in 1970. It would continue to drop into the 70s. Over the period of three four-year plans that ran between 1953 and 1964, the Taiwan economy was transformed. But in 1964, things were only just getting started. Remember the four Asian tiger economies of Southeast Asia? Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, and South Korea? Well, Hong Kong was the first one to adopt this model of government-supported export-oriented manufacturing and industrialization. All boats did not rise equally with the tide. When does it ever? But through the combination of government support and the workers of Taiwan rolling up their sleeves and toiling in these factories, Taiwan saw rises in per capita income and made truly one heck of a comeback. Some economists referred to this achievement as the Taiwan Chi-Chi or Taiwan Miracle. At the same time that the Taiwan Miracle was gaining in momentum, geopolitically, The people and the government on Taiwan saw the beginning of the transition from the safety and security of the U.S. military to uncharted waters. For Chiang Kai-shek, he watched it all unfold in agonizing slow motion, going back to the early JFK years. As soon as word got out about the magnitude of the Sino-Soviet split, Jiang had to have known. It was only a matter of time before the U.S. would explore a new relationship with Mao and Zhou. And sure enough, even before Nixon announced his candidacy for president in the 1968 election, he had gone on the record enough to indicate he was open to reviewing U.S. policy with regard to China. Jiang, after so many decades going back to Roosevelt in the 1930s, he knew the Americans wouldn't be able to resist this chance. And then in March 1969, after fighting broke out in Manchuria along the 
China-Soviet border. And after hearing all the anti-Russian invective coming out of Beijing, Jiang knew despite China's backing of the Viet Cong, it was a certainty that Richard Nixon and Zhou Enlai would find their way to each other. In 1964, France recognized the PRC. Senator Ted Kennedy had also been making a lot of noise about reaching out to the PRC. Other Democrats and some Republicans, too, had been calling for a reassessment of U.S.-China policy. After Nixon was elected, Italy, Canada, West Germany, Belgium, they all began making plans to follow France's lead. By the mid-1960s, the U.S. was neck-deep in the Vietnam War. Jiang had correctly predicted how this would turn out for the Americans. During the war, Taiwan was used as a base for military operations. Jiang also sent some aid to the South Vietnamese government. And Claire Chenault's China Air Transport that was bought by the CIA in 1950 and renamed Air America, they operated out of Taiwan, among many other bases, and kept busy throughout the Vietnam War. As he did with the Korean War, Jiang offered to send ROC troops to Vietnam to support the United States in this fight against communism, something Jiang was quite expert in by now. And both times, Jiang was told, thanks but no thanks. December 17, 1969, Chiang Kai-shek was formally given the bad news. U.S. Ambassador Walter P. McConaughey was tasked with the dubious honor of informing Chiang about what Nixon had up his sleeve with respect to the PRC. When McConaughey was born back in 1908, Chiang was just joining the Tongmenghui, beginning his rise that, after... Six decades of making history had finally led him to this moment. For more than a year leading up to this meeting with the U.S. ambassador, Nixon and other close D.C. friends assured Jiang this wouldn't happen. And as the train gathered momentum and the inevitable started to become fact, the White House, State Department, and military, everyone tried to sugarcoat this whole matter of cozying up to the PRC. Ambassador McConaughey in this meeting assured Jiang this new direction Nixon was taking would stabilize the strait and it would turn the heat down after so many years of conflict and that, well, this was a good thing, not a bad thing. Imagine how Jiang felt at that moment. He was 82 years old. Think of all that History we've discussed in so many past CHP episodes that he played a central role in. This was to be the final indignity. And as McConaughey went on, all John could do was sit there and silently eat this bitterness. After that, the big milestones started to happen, one after the other, calling off the U.S. naval patrols through the Taiwan Strait. Then Nixon, on October 1970, using the forbidden words, People's Republic of China, for the first time in public remarks by a U.S. president. There was also the lifting of bans on travel to the PRC, the January 20th, 1970 breakthrough in Warsaw that led to Kissinger's secret trip in the summer of 1971, ping-pong diplomacy in April 1971, Nixon's big announcement, and capping it all off with the February 1972 week that changed the world, as old RN called it. And amidst all the hoopla that would emerge following Kissinger's return, 
on October 25, 1971, the UN voted 76 to 35 to remove the Republic of China from the China seat on the Security Council and to replace them with the government of the PRC. Prior to the vote, the ROC delegation walked out. Why stick around for that humiliation before all the countries of the world? And that was that. This reversal of fortune for Taiwan sure opened up a can of worms. That's what we'll look at now, because as you can surely imagine, with everything now forced out into the open, Taiwan's position, simply as a political entity, was put into question. You know, it would take seven more years after the Nixon visit before the U.S. and the PRC established formal diplomatic relations. And this would occur during the Carter administration. So although Nixon had gone and done what he did, our China embassy during this period from 1972 to 1978 was still located in Taipei. Zhou Enlai, as a leader, a revolutionary, a diplomat, and as a negotiator, was beyond peer. He has his critics, but he knew how to drive a hard bargain and rarely deviated from his principles. And where Taiwan was concerned, he couldn't have been more clear. In fact, it was a condition to even agreeing to sit down with Henry Kissinger. Taiwan. That was the price that had to be paid for relations with the PRC. The U.S. had to end things with Jiang and the ROC and say the essential words demanded by the PRC side in the Shanghai communique. Quote, The United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China and that Taiwan is part of China. The United States does not challenge this position. End quote. When brainstorming a solution to this new Taiwan Wenti, or Taiwan problem as it was so often called, the U.S. looked to the model of Sino-Japan relations and the deal Prime Minister Tanaka had hammered out. Japan had beaten the U.S. to the punch with regard to their Taiwan policy. The trade between Taiwan and Japan continued on. China had no pushback on that. Kissinger and his team closely followed the Japanese approach that called for downgrading political relations with the ROC, but still maintaining robust economic relations with Taiwan. Part and parcel of any diplomatic relations with the PRC was that there were three vermilion-colored lines that everyone had to promise not to cross. First was no two-China policy permitted. You had to pick one or the other. Secondly, nations couldn't carry out a one-China, one-Taiwan policy. Taiwan was part of China, so by maintaining any government-to-government relations with them, also wasn't permitted. And the third thing, Chairman Mao and Jiang both agreed on this one. Whoever wanted to establish diplomatic relations with the PRC had to agree they would never support Taiwan independence in any shape or form. That was sacred. No Taiwan independence. In other words, dropping the Republic of China name and sending a membership application to the UN under the name of the Republic of Taiwan. Jiang wrote to Nixon that Americans, going back to the beginning with the Dixie mission of 1944-47, to were always so naive whenever the CCP was concerned. Repeatedly in his diaries, Jiang would 
agonize over the naivete of the Americans whenever they met with Zhou Enlai and this old, lifelong, anti-communist warrior warned Nixon about the CCP and the perils of trusting them. And if he could see the current state of U.S.-China relations, he might have reason to believe he was right again. Nixon played it both ways. He was full speed ahead with the PRC, but was also assuring Jiang that America would defend Taiwan if it ever came to that. And we're still haunted into our day with that assurance and how much substance it contains from presidential administration to administration. Jiang Jingguo visited the U.S. in April 1970. Even though he wasn't the leader, he had essentially taken over from his father. Some were not happy about how a constitutional government was treated like a Jiang dynasty instead. Nonetheless, he got the royal treatment and the red carpet was rolled out on this visit. And when Jingguo had his sit-down with Nixon, RN assured the younger Jiang as well, the U.S., wasn't going to sell Taiwan down the river. After the White House meeting, Jiang Jingguo flew to New York to speak at some trade association event and narrowly missed being assassinated by a couple pro-Taiwan independence radicals with guns. It was a close call, right in front of the Plaza Hotel. Also in 1970, the Jiangs faced another bombshell situation. And this concerned Peng Ming Min. Who was Peng Ming Min? Well, I already mentioned Lei Chun and Boyang at the start of this episode. So let's close things off with Peng Ming Min. One interesting thing about Peng was that as a 22-year-old in 1945, he was visiting his brother in Nagasaki. And whilst there, he not only lost an arm in an American bombing raid, but during his recuperation in a hospital, Fat Man was dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945. Anyway, back in Taiwan, Peng was 24 when 228 happened. And like a lot of young Taiwanese, what he witnessed at that time and for the weeks that followed transformed his whole attitude about the KMT and the future of Taiwan. After obtaining a law degree at National Taiwan University, he went off to get his master's at McGill in Montreal and a Ph.D. at the University of Paris, and he also spent some time in New York. In 1957, he returned to Taiwan, and 34 years of age, Hung became the youngest full professor at Taiwan University, teaching in the poli-sci department. His specialty was aviation law, and because of this specialty, he showed up on Jiang's radar as one of the many young 20-, 30-year-olds who the KMT were aggressively grooming for future positions in the party. But all of that came to a sudden end on September 20, 1964. Peng Ming-min and two of his students were arrested after they were discovered with 10,000 flyers they had secretly printed of a manifesto entitled Declaration of Self-Salvation of the Taiwanese People. They planned to distribute it widely, but were found out. And one of these two students of Peng Ming-min was Roger Xie-Tong-min, who would later go on to be another major figure in Taiwan politics. Peng got eight years, but thanks to a successful campaign led by Amnesty International and public outcry from so many human rights advocates around the world, his sentence was cut to 14 months, but house arrest for life. In 1968, 
Peng was able to sneak out of Taiwan and make his way to Hong Kong, where he traveled to Stockholm on a forged passport. And once he made it to Sweden, he requested and received political asylum. It was quite an understatement to say that Jiang was livid that such a person was allowed to slip through his fingers. That such a dangerous political opponent as Peng Mingmin was out there in the wild, freely able to speak out against his regime, just filled Jiang with rage. The damage such an articulate and popular figure as Peng Mingmin could do, well, this was truly unsettling. And then, in August 1970, the U.S. government delivered a gut punch to Jiang when they decided to grant Peng Mingmin a U.S. visa. He had accepted a position at the University of Michigan, but before he could accept the position, he needed a visa to come live and work in the U.S. Both Kissinger and Secretary of State Rogers signed off on that sensitive visa application. And one of the strings attached to the visa was a promise Peng had to make that he wouldn't engage in any talk of Taiwan independence while in the U.S. When this whole matter got found out, not just the two Jiangs, but Mao, too. He wasn't thrilled about this either, having someone as dangerous as Peng Mingmin possibly using this U.S. base to advance the cause of Taiwan independence. Well, that didn't sit well with him. The elder Jiang ranted about this. Jiang the Younger called this, quote, the most abrasive event in Sino-U.S. relations in 20 years, end quote. And in those last 20 years Jiang Qingguo was referring to, Oh, there had been no shortage of abrasive moments. Early 1971, the United States passed administrative control of Okinawa and the Senkaku Islands to Japan. This island chain, northeast of Taiwan, is called the Diaoyu, or Diaoyu Tai Islands in China. This matter of the Senkakus, or Diaoyus, has been a stress point ever since. Even though Taiwan was one of the claimants to the island chain, when the U.S. worked this out with Japan... They didn't even bother to tell Jiang in advance. Jiang Jingguo knew, under these new circumstances, with Taiwan being alienated and any hopes of returning to the mainland dashed, if the KMT was to remain relevant and in charge, he had to make some changes. The party was going to have to bite the bullet and allow the opposition to let off steam. There was a belief that the most prudent way to proceed was to seek the backing of the Taiwanese who had been shut out from the political process all these years. This was the first step in establishing what would ultimately become majority rule. And he began to allow for certain things to be said that, well, previously might have landed you in Green Island prison. In the military and civil service, it was like affirmative action, and the numbers of Taiwanese grew noticeably. Taiwanization was now in process. Moving in the direction of democratic reforms was going to happen with or without the KMT. Lei Jun was saying that in 1960. If he was going to make the best of a bad situation, Jiang Jingguo had to get ahead of this one. And one added bonus was that in the U.S. and other liberal democracies, despite everyone abandoning Taiwan and trying to be the PRC's baby, popular sentiment was still with Taiwan and not throwing them under the bus. How to grow the opposition and keep them under KMT control was one heck of a thorny problem. Chang Jingguo allowed for a Taiwan version of allowing a hundred flowers bloom. 
He was willing to bravely take it on the chin as far as criticism of the KMT for past and present transgressions. But where Taidu was concerned, Taiwan independence, that was off limits. Taiwanese could say what they want up to a certain degree, but any talk of independence was strictly forbidden, and the arrests, beatings, and imprisonment still continued on despite this apparent thaw. The 1973 oil shock hit Taiwan hard, like it did in many other places. Even I remember it as a young teen. To counteract the economic downturn, in 1974, Jiang Qingguo called for these shi or 10 major construction projects. These projects included construction of key utilities such as highways, seaports, airports, power plants, a shipbuilding plant, and a steel mill. These infrastructure projects not only employed a lot of workers, it also built on top of the earlier foundation laid during the 1960s, and the projects contributed greatly to the economic success of Taiwan and made it an industrialized country. Chiang Kai-shek's final years, for most of the early 1970s, were not good. By 1975, he was an extremely aged 87 years old. And after a long illness, he died just before midnight on April 5th at the conclusion of the grave-sweeping or Qingming holiday. From past CHP episodes, we saw how once Mao passed from the scene and everyone was sure they were safe from his wrath, all kinds of changes suddenly started being called for. Some matters, which everyone knew to be inevitable but dared not speak openly about them while Mao still had a heartbeat, were now okay to bring up at meetings. Well, the same kind of situation now faced Taiwan and its 16,150,000 residents. Chiang Kai-shek was a larger-than-life figure, tragic as historians made him out to be. And between Green Island and all the other symbols of repression that were under his authority, ultimately, Chiang Kai-shek was as brutal as some of the other dictators of the 20th century. And there were a few. But now he was gone, and while he lay in state at the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall in Taipei, the U.S.-backed government in South Vietnam also fell. Chiang Kai-shek sure called that one. As I mentioned earlier, C.K. Yen was sworn in as the next president of the Republic of China. Chiang Jingguo, who had already begun taking over from his father for many years now, served as chairman of the KMT. C.K. Yen would serve out the rest of Jiang's fifth term, which ended in May 1978, and predictably, Jiang Jingguo was elected the next president. And under Jiang Jingguo, that's when all the political changes that no one thought would ever happen started happening. And that's all for next time. 13 and 14 are both unlucky numbers, so I think we should be able to wind this up in part 15. Like I said last time, if you made it this far, why walk away now? In terms of today's national discussions about Taiwan, these remaining episodes will be much more relevant and familiar. Okay, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off once again from my California home. Each and every one of you are cordially invited to come back again next time for another exciting episode of the Taiwan History Podcast. Take care, everyone.